Welcome to Money in the Air, the music podcast about neighboring rights, the royalties you earn from the public performance of your recordings and the business of music in general. Brought to you by IFR, the International Association for Artists and Rights Holders. I'm Andrew, co-founder and chief royalty officer of Royalty. Hi, I'm Gina Deacon. I work for Absolute Rights Management and I work with record labels and artists to ensure we claim the royalty income due to them. I'm Stacey Haber and I'm from Inside Baseball Music Publishing. Hey, welcome back to Money in the Air, the Neighboring Rights Podcast brought to you by IFR, the International Association for Artists and Rights Holders. Guess what? Today we have artist questions, except it's a little skewed. We have label and publisher questions. Luke Pollitz and Danny West from Complay Records. I do distribution and a bit of A&R for Complay with me and Danny. Uh, I do, I run the publishing at Complay with me Records. And we are sub-published through Universal. But they haven't done neighbouring rights yet. <laughs> so they're going to ask us a couple of questions. So I work for an organisation in Leeds called uh, Music Leeds. And they're set up solely to do neighbouring rights and publishing for upcoming artists. Okay. Stacey's hands are in the air right now. <laughs> I didn't know this. We've been, what, talking every week, at least once a week for how long now? Essentially, we just got up-and-coming up artists in the room and spoke about neighbouring rights and made them aware of it, signed them up, offered them like um, 28-day rolling deal similar to Centric that we collected all the publishing and neighbouring rights. And we did the administration for that. And did you take them on the rights holder side and the performance side? Both sides. Brilliant. And did you tell them that if they don't register the rights holder side first, they'll never get paid? <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> good. Well, that's really, really good. So then what do you want to ask us? <laughs> My question, I had a very long dispute with a artist manager about when and how artists should be signed up to PRS and get their right of a song when they didn't or they did write a melody that is like the main part of the song. Um, immediately, you shouldn't leave a writing session without it, even if it's on the back of a napkin, without those splits agreed. But that's publishing. We're talking about neighboring rights. Instead, <laughs> publishing and neighboring rights. Because publishing companies tend to be neighboring rights representatives. That's why. So, but I answered your question anyway. Yeah. Do you have a question about neighboring rights? Yeah. I well, think good. Ultimately, I would love to know how we go about actually collecting the money from radios and TVs and stuff like that. So, like, how does that happen? So it functions very similarly to music publishing. So you mentioned PRS. I'm just using that as a placeholder. It would be that you would sign up on behalf of your artist or the artist directly with PPL. And PPL would then administer the licenses with the radio stations and whoever is broadcasting the performances of the sound recording. And then from there, PPL would then allocate the monies both to the rights holder side and then also to the artists and the non-featured artists. And how does PPL get an accurate take on what's been played where? Is Do they have to trust the shops, the stores, every place that the radio stations? It's all supplied by reports. I mean, predominantly it's used the ISRC. It's very important that most societies use those codes to track the information. And it's logged on in terms of the usage. So generally speaking, yeah, the information is logged for radio usage and television usage. Otherwise, it's done on a percentage calculation, basically, in terms of the, I suppose, the, the way an artist is rated is the best way of, um, of determining how the splits are made. I was just say, going back to your question as to how the income is collected with the company, come play with me, did you say? You have accounts with PPL and other collection societies, or do you just have an account with PPL? 
PayPal fair. Yeah, all of them to be fair. Okay, cool. And do you log into their portal and register the repertoire that way? As of me joining, no, not anymore. AMI does that. But prior to that, yes, that's what someone's job would have been. AMI is the distributor for Comply Records. Yeah, AMI yeah. is the distributor. Oh, cool. As okay, so, you, right, so you'll supply them with the data and then they'll log it and, and claim it accordingly. Okay, that's cool. As long as yeah. it's all being logged, then that's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, so that's Luke's job. So supply them with all the data. Yes. Good. Good. So how big is the spreadsheet you're keeping? Very, very big, unfortunately. Good. We um we use OpenPlay for our distribution. It's like I think Universal's third party portal. Okay. Um and so there's lots and lots of mess there to fill out and on the track level and the release level. So yeah, hopefully Danny has everything he needs now to uh get collecting, I guess. Or to feed to EMI. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh question. Yeah. I've been doing my PayPal for a while. That doesn't go to mean I know everything what it means. What is the difference between a featured and a non featured performer? Because mm-hmm. like when I when I sign my compositions, I put myself as a featured recordings. Thank you. Awesome. Recordings. Um, I put myself as a, fe- a featured performer and a composer because that's what I've been told. Right. Is the yeah. way to do it. What is the difference between those three things? There are very different pools of income that get divvied out for featured and non-featured performers. So the schema is that basically they the intention here is to make sure that all parties, all contributors to a sound recording are accounted for. So if you are a featured performer, then you have a deal with your label or you are the primary artist as seen on Spotify, but there's a collection of musicians and background vocalists that supplement the recordings. And so each one of the societies have a specific pool of income that gets allocated to non-featured performers as well. And the, what it's called that PPL is contracted featured performer, whoever signed the contract with whoever's releasing the recordings, then there's other featured performers, like if you have a guest artist um, or a duet, and then there's non-featured, which is all your uh, session players and background vocalists, or the pizza guy who came in and you left his voice on the recording. So how far down that, did you say, I guess it gets divvied up by the mm-hmm. importance of the people on the track. Mm-hmm. How important is a composer versus a non-featured? Composers don't count here. It's only people who made an audible contribution, who made a sound on the recording composer goes to the publishing they ask who the composer is because they want to be able to match it with prs and mcps for uh, the blanket license for sync but it has no bearing on the royalty for neighboring rights okay. contracted featured and other featureds will get the lion share of the performer share and the non-featureds will get a smaller share mostly that means that featureds get more money yeah. but sometimes it can go the other way. If a featured is an orchestra with 100 people <laughs> and you have one non-featured bass player, that bass player is going to make more money. But that's the way the cookie crumbles. You can't do anything about it. It is what it is. So if, if I could, can I give you a live example? Yes. There's a track that I made myself. I self-produced it and I also sang on it. Yes. So would I register that twice? As it, not, not the recording. Would I, no, but would I register myself twice as a featured performer or only once yes. as both and a programmer? Or would I just yes. be a programmer? Yes. Yeah, one. definitely. That's quite important because PPL will only pay for one role. You, you're not going to get anything more from PPL, but some of the societies pay out for two or three. If you're mandated for PPL for worldwide collection, you need to log all your contributions for somewhere like Germany that will pay three different roles out. So it's very important that you list every single one. A little bit tedious, maybe, but worthwhile in the long run. Yeah, okay. But PPL won't let you register as featured and non-featured. They'll only let you register all your roles as a featured artist. So vocals, uh, electric guitar, bass guitar, keyboards, percussion. Yeah, so it'd be Donny West, vocals, Donny West, studio yes. programmer. Yes, then... all under contracted featured performer. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where does um, like a, a remixer fall into those? So remixers are only entitled to neighboring rights if they made a new sound. Okay. 
not if they've just changed what was already there. Okay, that's useful to know. What if they've manipulated a sound that was already in there to sound like a new sound? I'm going to say no, because generally speaking, a remixer isn't an eligible role. I will look into it and confirm that for you, but my black and white saying no, because, yeah, categorically, it's, it's an existing recording that you're not actually adding anything to. You're just changing it around, remixing it. Yeah. And not the caveat would, the party. Yeah. The caveat would be if the remixer took, say, the guitar track and repurposed it as a trumpet track, then mm. you could put them down as the trumpet player, as a session non-featured. But if you put him down as a remixer, no money. Yeah, <laughs> it's all you've just got to think so carefully about the categories that you choose, and then when the categories, you know, as Stacey mentioned, contractor featured artist, non featured artist, or the other option, which is other featured artist, got to think about that because that is really important. I've seen so many times a contractor featured artist being claimed as non featured uh, and losing out a lot. So you've really got to get that right, and then you've got to think carefully about the roles that you play within those categories to make sure that you list the roles correctly as well. It's a little bit of a minefield, but once you know what you're doing, it's um, you're up and running. If I was a remixer on a track and I listed myself as a featured artist and as a trumpet player because I'd remix the guitar track to sound like a trumpet, would I be taking someone else's royalties away from them? By yes. Doing that? Okay. And if you did that, I'd go fraud. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> you're non-featured. You're non-featured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You have to evidence it quite often as well. You know, it's not just a case that you can submit the claims and they are checked and they are checked by various societies as well. Yeah, otherwise we'd be seeing a lot more of that. So definitely not. It's not, it's not an easy claim, basically. Yeah, top tip. If you are going to try and claim neighbouring rights as the remix or trumpet player, make sure that you're listed in the credits on Spotify mm. or on Discogs or All Songs, whatever. There has to be tangible evidence. Yeah, I was going to ask about, like, when I'm distributing releases, we have, like, primary artists and mm-hmm. like, secondary roles, but there aren't featured artists and non-featured artists in the same way. And, like... You can only, well, there are, but you can only have one primary artist. So if Danny produced on the track, he couldn't be the primary artist. He'd only be the vocalist or the, you know, on this on that track. So it's slightly separate, I guess. But how does that translate into... Producers are different. Let's take them away for Sorry, yeah. the moment. Let's say that your primary artist is a band. Mm. Each of the members of the band that signed the recording agreement are contracted featured artists. Yeah. Um, the producer needs something from PPL called an eligible studio producer form. Okay. From Sound Exchange, it's called the Letter of Direction. Yeah. For Sound Exchange, the primary artist, the contracted featured artist, will determine what percentage of their own royalties they're giving to the producer. It, at PPL, does a producer with an eligible studio producer form automatically go into the non-featured pool? Generally speaking, yes. Unless they've got another role, in which case if they've got another role, then they'll be a contracted featured artist as well. But if um, you know, if they're a main artist, sorry, they'll be a contracted. And if they're a, a session right. player as and- well, like keyboards, then they'll be a non-featured. And you'll usually know based on how it's released. So if the released artist's name is ABC song by Danny West, then that's that. If the producer is more prominent than whoever the vocalist is, because they've just hired in to sing for the session. If it's ABC song by Lady Lady, produced by Danny West, then it goes back into the non-feature. So the title of the song and the named artist will also play a part in who gets what. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. I just had a similar situation where a remix artist wanted to be credited as a primary. It can happen. If you get remixed by Nile Rogers, mm. it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. So, but if you get remixed by me, not going to happen. <laughs> International clients will go direct in the United States and then elect a PPL to do 
the rest of the world outside of the US. I'm only saying that because the US is a very big market with, even though we don't collect on traditional radio stations here, still pretty big because of Sirius XM and Pandora. So they collect about a billion dollars every single year. And once you get like the, the subtle nuances with how the accounting and the largest direction and, you know, the way that non-featured artisan who pays that, it's, it's really not that complicated. So what Andrew's saying is, say to PPL, yeah. we want you to collect worldwide, excluding the U.S., and then go directly to sound exchange in the yeah, U.S. Yeah. And then when you can get your head around it, say, PPL, I want you to collect worldwide, excluding the U.S. and Germany, and then go direct to Germany, right. to GVL for Germany, if that's a big market for you. Yeah, I, I think my brain can't wrap it around. Is, is PPL talking to someone's share? in order to get the naming yes. rights in America. Yes. So does everyone in America play a director song share and then a share? Song, the sound, sound exchange. Sound exchange um, yeah. And then it, that goes to PPL. Yes. The portion of it goes to PPL. Yes. And how is that worked out? If somebody has a worldwide mandate with sound exchange, then PPL is going to send sound exchange artists that are directly affiliated with PPL. And so the exchanges happen that way. Inclusive licensee mm-hmm. on that PPL art mm-hmm. and naming rights. What happens five years in a day? Does that automatically... So what you're saying is if you register a recording and somebody's claiming for it, will they automatically give up those rights and transfer them over? So, yeah, at the end of the yeah. licence. Unlikely. <laughs> i tell you why. Yeah, no, I'm just being honest from, from what I've seen. Most people register the repertoire with no end date. So they'll submit with a start date, but they won't submit with an end date. And that then continues to carry on rolling until somebody steps in and says, hold on a minute. XYZ company have been claiming these royalties for the last 10 years and the rights ended, you know, 10 years ago. You'll get a little bit backdated <clears throat> with a new rights held or, or if it's yourselves directly. You need to keep a handle on it, basically. You need to be watching it and uh, cataloguing when the rights end and making sure you step in. And if it's not end dated, reclaiming it. What about if there is an end date and the end date comes and passes? Does the money go into the black box or does it still go to the old representative? If, if there's an end date, then theoretically it should or probably will go into the black box. If nobody else steps forward and claims it, PPL cannot continue to pay somebody who has held their hands up and say, this is the end date and I, I don't claim after this date. But and, and, there isn't anybody and, else to pay. Andrew, is it the same at Sound Exchange? I have to check with them to see what their policies are, but I would say when in doubt it's better to be proactive about managing what they're doing instead of like trusting them to manage what is going on like they have i don't know sound exchange has six hundred and fifty thousand members and counting um and they still have a large amount of monies that they you know it's being withheld in suspense because it's not claimed so they have a lot of stuff to do um but yeah theoretically what should happen is they should withhold that payment but i can't confirm to be exact on what's happening in those instances okay. if there is isn't that any. is that more of a moral thing so like if no, because when i signed people's rights up to ppl i did sign them up like till 2020 like 2099 yeah yeah so like does that ever become a legal thing, even though we have a contract that says the right for us to exploit this um, competition is like it, five years, six years? And when we put 2099, like, is that a conflict? Or? Well, I'm guessing that your agreement says five years, and at the end of the five years, it will roll over until terminated. Yeah. So that's why you put a faraway end date. But if you had a, fly, a flat five years, mm-hmm. then you would put that end date. Well, you put the end of the retention period okay. um, as a thing. But if it's a rollover, you don't know when it's going to end, so you can't put an actual date. Mm. So that's what I mean by contractual. Yeah. But what you don't want is you don't want to let the collection, the payments lapse and go into the black box because you won't get them back. 
what or uh, alternatively go to the prior distributor or administrator of the royalties i mean that's honestly typically how it happens even if there is a set term date with a agreement if there's no redirection that took place because another deal didn't happen the, the monies will just continue to flow through to the prior distributor or administrator. So it's up, the onus is not on the old administrator to update the records. It's on the new administrator to assert their rights over the catalog. That's typically the order of operations. Cool. Thank you, guys. Any more questions? Yeah. Oh. So, so I, I love this. Um, so obviously, I feel like the world, world knows Taylor Swift sold her catalog. Um, what happened to her neighboring rights? Ah, okay. So, first of all, let's rephrase that for pedantry. She didn't sell her catalog. Yeah, her label sold, sold it sold yeah, without offering it to yeah, her. Yeah, her yeah. Okay. So, that's okay. So, whoever's recording, this is why the ISRC number is so important. Whichever ISRC number has the public performance is the one that gets paid the neighboring rights. So, she has re recorded all those tracks yeah, now. Yeah. And because she owns the publishing, the old ISRC numbers are never going to see a public performance again because she'll deny it on the publishing side. So it will always be her new ISRC numbered recordings. Okay. I had a quick question about samples. There's like, no quick question. <laughs> me and my friend run a, like an electronic label um, and need to know about how to navigate neighboring rights on sampling, basically. Easy. Okay. Whatever you used of the recording that was sampled, those artists get part of the neighboring rights as a featured performer. Do not let Sound Exchange or PRS to, uh, PPL tell you they're non-featured. They are featured. And to what degree are you defining like a sampled artist? Like if it was a kick drum taken from a garage track 25 years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. That drummer gets it. Okay. Oh, okay. And there's even, a, yes. And there's even an argument for the producer if the producer was getting neighboring rights on the original. Oh, and how far can that chain go back? Because I guess like- Forever. Do the right thing. Sorry, I better stop answering. You guys take this because I'm getting a little too angry. Six years as an artist, you can back claim for six years. So no, if, he means how old is how old does the recording have to be before you don't have to pay for no, it? No, oh, okay. Oh, it's, it's public. It, whenever it goes into public domain, so if a song, if a recording rather it goes into public domain, then it's fine. Uh, but uh, how far back? I mean, just say a hundred hundred years. Whatever something is in now in public domain status. Uh, you can you can use something creatively, but other than that, if it's a copyrighted material, it's not in public domain. That doesn't matter if it's a sample on a sample on a sample. Like the trail needs to be accounted for. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I was trying to say. Rather than how many years it needs to go back. Like if I sample from a garage track from the nineties and they've sampled a drum kick from the seventies, does it just keep knocking back yeah. on the? Yeah, that's like, exactly right. I know it's a it's a headache. I mean, there's that's why Stacey said a simple question like answer to short answer to samples, but yeah, it's. If it's a derivative work on a derivative work, like you need to, whatever the original splits were agreed on on the original sample. And then if that is done, then those hold true. And it just keeps like, do you see what I mean? And as long as I'm on my soapbox, if you use AI and you train it on somebody's old drum track, yeah. that drummer gets your neighboring rights. Wow. But for, for instance, Luke's example, yeah. let's take a 90s track all the way back to 1920. How how would the estate for that nineteen twenty producer like know his kick drum is in the twenty twenty three? I know it's his his um prerogative to, yeah, yeah. to register the the backlog, but like not prerogative. It's his absolute duty to not be in breach of copyright yeah. and to come clean as soon as possible. But I think your question is 
if he doesn't, yeah. how are they going to find out? And, and the answer and, is they'll always find out. And have a right to then take the tractor. Yeah. It's not even about that. Like you would, I mean, it was a case with Eminem. Like he didn't clear my name. And I don't, I don't want to go back. Function for the same, same thing. Copyright is copyright. So if you don't clear your samples, they can literally take your copyright, first of all. And second of all, there's like settlement fees included in that. So it's just a very expensive thing to, to, to play. Makes a lot more sense why some producers are going like 100% hardware now. Just like no, yeah. no sampling, just only like synthesizers. So in the case of Splice, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where does Splice land in this argument? If I pay my money for a quote-unquote royalty-free mm -hmm. uh, drum loop, mm -hmm. do I owe the original composer of the drum loop a copyright? Not the composer, the performer. <laughs> so it depends on the license that you buy from Splice. And you'll also notice when you read the license that it is taking neighboring rights. They do want to be credited. That it is a limited license. Yeah. It's limited to something like 250 or 500,000 streams. And then you have to pay again. So... You're better off using something like TrackLib. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've used TrackLib. Okay. Okay. Here's the thing about about sampling. I happen to love sampling because I love old music and new music, and having them together is great. If you come to me to clear a sample before it's released, I might give it to you for next mm. to nothing or for twenty percent or whatever. If I catch you and come after you, which I've done for many clients, we're taking it all a hundred percent. So it's better to go first. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Is there no thought to be stood on? Like, if Luke's producer didn't know. Do you know what I mean? Like, you, you knew it came from a 90s track, and you knew the 90s track came from a 70s track, but you didn't know where the 70s track originally, like, you genuinely didn't know that that's that's a, Yeah, I, I understand. That's very frustrating, because some it's record-keeping is very difficult to come by sometimes, especially as you get older. But do your best, <clears throat> document your diligence, and I would say that's the best thing you can do. <laughs> but Stacey will come to my right yeah. <laughs> It's like if you buy a sample pack from Bandcamp and it's got a breakbeat on it that you've never heard in your life and it's like super rare and you can't find the like origin of it. Well, ask Bandcamp. Yeah, fair enough. It shouldn't be on Bandcamp then. Like Yeah. It just read the license from mm. whatever you take. Okay. If it's just on Bandcamp and you take a sample without it actually being a licensed sample from them. Mm. You're stealing it and you know it. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. All right. Just saying. Please come back again. This oh, was brilliant. Yeah, I've got more questions. Oh, okay. <laughs> Good. Stay tuned, everybody, for part two. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for having us. And thank you for listening. And remember, if you have questions, email us at info at ifr.co.uk. That's I-A-F-A-R dot C-O dot U-K. Have a great week.